0: As India celebrates its 75th year of independence from the British rule, it is interesting to learn more about how the partition and independence affect lives of people even today. Over the last few decades from the year of independence, the movement to free India had been touching high momentum under the dominating and distinguished leaders of the subcontinent like Muhammad Ali Jinnah, Gandhi, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, Lyakat Ali Khan, and many others. It made the British realize that they could no longer hold on to India in bondage to the crown. Long years ago, we made a trip with destiny. And now, the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. That was Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru in his most famous speech, Drist with Destiny, on the eve of independence. But while independence is celebrated, it was the darkest hour for many. To learn more about this, I'm joined by Shivali Karbanda Khadiyan, who is a researcher and assistant professor of English literature at the University of Delhi. Her areas of research include South Asian studies, particularly partition studies. She has published papers in the field of partition literature and is addressed at national and international conferences and seminars. Hi, Shivali. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Anmol.
1: That's a pleasure.
0: Um, you know, so I'd like to begin by talking about the partition. Uh, there was an agreement during that time that was set forth that no relocation of people uh, were to be made, but about 15 million people moved or were forced to move rather during that time. And about uh, half a million to 2 million died during the violence during the time. What can you tell me you know, about the partition from a human level?
1: Uh, Yeah, and more um, recent researches on the subject of partition suggest that there are crucial points of departure between uh, historical official accounts of partition and those as portrayed in the traumatic tales of the millions who bore witness to the event. So the story of partition uh, has been one of several losses of home, language, community, accompanied by a myth of return. It's, in fact, very interesting to see how effortlessly our history manages to conceal our pasts from us. Despite the discrepancies, um, you know, what is widely accepted now is that about 12 to 15 million people crossed the borders. Uh, Then estimates of the dead varied from 200,000, which was uh, the contemporary British figure, to 2 million, Um, now, uh, you know, a later Indian estimate. So somewhere around a million people died is agreed upon. People traveled in trains, buses, cars, the privileged ones took flights, but mostly they traveled on foot in great columns called Kafilas. The longest of them had nearly 400,000 people. Women and children disappeared from Kafilas as, um, you know, slaughter, murder, arson, accompanied the migrants movement. As for children, how many disappeared? How many were orphaned? Nobody kept account. count. Um, about 100,000 women are thought to have been abducted and raped by men of religions different from their own and also by men of their own religion. These are the ice-fold numbers contested even 74 years after the cataclysmic event. Feminist historiographers um, uh, you know, like Rituman and Kamala Haseen have you know, documented how women of one community were sexually assaulted by men of the other in an overt assertion of their identity and uh, you know a simultaneous humiliation of the other by dishonouring their women. So when you ask me about uh, the human side of partition, it comes as no surprise that the state consciously tried to neutralize the sense of dislocation or trauma or nostalgia you know that partition represented and the deeper uh, human uh, you know aspects and human dimensions of the tragedy were largely ignored and the trauma and pain associated with partition exists privately in the oral accounts, fictional narratives, memoirs, diaries, biographies, testimonials of victims and their subsequent generations. And uh, these stories are told and retold inside so many households of partition migrants. Uh, You know, they've continued to kind of live in uh, individual and collective memories of people who had to restore and reconstruct their lives that were fraught with uh, losses faced at uh, multiple levels in, in a number of ways so we therefore uh, you know need to bring into account the deep um, you know personal meanings of partition as opposed to the generality of partition that exists publicly in statist accounts and political rhetoric
0: and uh, the people who did relocate you know now uh, from the now pakistan to the current india what do we know about uh, their lives once did come to India. I mean, so much was lost from language, property, ways of life. Uh, speak to me more about this.
1: Uh, well, uh, to begin with, Dhanmol, they were labeled as refugees or uh, various local equivalents such as Sharanarthi or Panagi, you know, pejorative terms that implied weakness, helplessness, you know, some kind of dependency and as so-called refugees they had to ask for hospitality and refuge uh, not in their mother tongues but in a language that was not in their uh, you know a language that was not their own uh, because if they were to speak in their mother tongues nobody would understand so they had to use uh, languages imposed on them by the hosts the authorities and the nation and that constituted what uh, Derrida and scholars like Anjali Roy, you know, call the first act of violence against them. The midnight hour of independence, you know, that was being celebrated, became the darkest hour for these people as they faced um, the dreadful prospect of being homeless and uprooted. Um, uh, you know, also adrift in a nation, they could not call their own. They were forced to rebuild their lives, looking for any work that would give them money. And for doing so, they were accused of uh, stooping down to the level of doing mean, petty jobs that were considered uncouth and devoid of uh, so-called cultural sophistication. Uh, Then uh, also, you know, they were seen as cultural aliens, blamed of overshadowing and contaminating the culture of the specific places they'd migrated to. As for the second and third generation migrants, uh, you know, the subsequent generations of partition victims, uh, their identities too have been shaped by the violent uh, memories of partition, uh, you know, uh, those memories having seeped into their, their cultural consciousness through what one could call an intergenerational transmission. The dialects. Uh, and languages uh, that uh, they spoke was stigmatized by the local populations. And so there was a rejection, very importantly, uh, there was a rejection of the mother tongue in favor of Hindi or English. And in order to assimilate into the Indian nation space, the migrants mastered the national language Hindi, which could kind of prove their worth as uh, citizens or contributors in the nation the migrants uh, also you know downplayed elements of their pre partition ethnic identities their pre partition selves you know their linguistic identities and they made conscious attempts to adapt to local manners and culture relinquishing their uh, varied spatial social everyday practices like their culinary heritage their clothing crafts their folk songs and other rituals more so and more significantly, um, they were cast as proxy citizens, uh, you know, non natives, non autochthonous in their own nation, kind of exilic figures who were never able to find a place they could call home. So the unforgivable sin uh, of their belated arrival, as well as uh, their languages, cuisines, and other more fluid cultural and religious practices, positioned them as strangers and outsiders, even though they were uh, granted formal legal citizenship.
0: You know, I'd like to step back a little and understand more about the partition from a political level. So in March 1947, uh, Lord Mountbatten arrived in Delhi uh, with a mandate to find, you know, the speedy way of bringing the British Raj to an end. And on June 3rd, the same year, he announced that independence would be brought forward uh, in August of that same year, presenting, you know, these politicians at the time with a ultimatum that, you know, that didn't really give them a choice uh, that, to, I mean, that didn't give them, It gave them little alternative to, but to agree to the creation of these two separate states. So speak to me about the political, uh, the partition from a political level during that time.
1: The uh, boundaries between the two nation states were not known until two days after they had formally become independent. And to make a so-called impartial decision the task of demarcating the boundaries between India and Pakistan was given to a British barrister, Sir Cyril Radcliffe, who'd never been to India or anywhere else in Asia and was not familiar with the demographics of the subcontinent. So it was in just five weeks that he chaired the two boundary commissions, one for Bengal and the other for Punjab. And the fate of millions of people got sealed, resulting in... uh, what we've all seen as an epic humanitarian crisis. In fact, in a famous interview Radcliffe gave to the journalist Kuldeep Nair in 1976 in Britain, he himself acknowledged the haste with which the faulty line was drawn. Um, I quote from Radcliffe, you know, he, he said, the time at my disposal was so short that I could not do a better job, he says. However, if I had two to three years, I might have improved on what I did. In the same interview, he also reveals how he'd almost given Lahore to India, but was then told how Pakistan would be left without any major city, as the decision to give Calcutta to India was already taken. So politically, the advent of Pakistan and India was marked by extraordinary uncertainty. And uh, a fact that is easily overlooked today is that it was just ten weeks before fifteenth August, nineteen forty-seven, that the formal constitutional partition of British India was finally decided upon in early June, nineteen forty-seven. As you mentioned, a month before that, in early May, Lord Mountbatten, the last uh, you know viceroy and and the first governor, John. General of Independent India was still discussing the repercussions of a partition if it comes to that and in late June 1947 three weeks after the British announcement of their new plan to partition the subcontinent senior leaders were still talking of June 1948 the deadline that had earlier been announced by the British PM Clement Attlee as the date when the British would hand over power to Indians so you know, appalled by the violence and bloodshed that followed Radcliffe, returned to England never to come back to India. He won't his papers and even refused to collect his fee for the job. And sadly enough for our, all of us, uh, the cartographers work remains an open wound even today and will continue to define the absurdity of this division.
0: Coming back to the effects of the partition and in particular, the role of, of uh, the partition in making Delhi what it is today, uh, speak to me about the migration from and to Delhi and the scale of change in the wake of the freedom.
1: old um, Delhi uh, being one of the oldest inhabited cities in the world. Um, many civilizations have been writ large on the soil of Delhi be it the soaring Delhi Sultanate, the Mughal Empire or the British Raj. We cannot therefore ascribe a single overarching identity to this historic city. Since you asked me about the role of partition in making Delhi what it is today, I shall be highlighting the role of the Punjabi migrants in particular in shaping the dynamics of the city post-partition. A vast majority of Punjabis living in Delhi are partition migrants of 1947 and their descendants who came to Delhi from West Punjab and Northwest Frontier Province in Pakistan, which is now the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa region in Pakistan. These people still continue to live on the lands allotted by the Ministry of Relief and Rehabilitation at places like Kingsway Camp, Karol Bagh, Patel Nagar, Lajpat Nagar, Gujranwala, Kalka Jee, old Rajendra Nagar and so many other places. The Muslims uh, left the capital for the new state of uh, Pakistan and thousands of Hindu and Sikh refugees fled Punjab for Delhi and its uh, you know surrounding areas changing the demography of the city which then transformed from an Urdu speaking city to a predominantly Punjabi city. So, Uh, refugees became, and I borrow uh, from historian Ranjana Sengupta, they became the last conquerors of Delhi. She talks about a rags-to-riches saga wherein she acknowledges the Punjabi refugees to be the driving dynamic behind the enormous transformation of Delhi from its, uh, you know, kind of stolid imperial identity of 1947 to the brimming, prosperous, ferocious city of multiple universes, it is today. The posh uh, colonies with uh, chrome and glass malls and the stone mansions, the exotic urban scapes, as they appear today, were largely developed by the Punjabi uh, refugees who worked silently, exhibiting resilience, energy, and vigor. Again, that's a stereotype uh, that was formed for uh, various reasons, which I'm not delving into he- here. And the temporary shacks in uh, merchant Market, Janpath, Khanna Market transformed into the elite Central and South Delhi shopping centers of today. South Delhi area was, in fact, an agricultural stretch in the 1940s um, until the government purchased land there to resettle the refugees who now with uh, improved fortunes have moved into the newer colonies like Golf Links, Vasant Vihar, GK and Maharani Bagh. The city um, also bears witness to a number of successful business enterprises set up by these refugees, like um, we all know of MDH Masale in Karol Bagh, Bahari Sans Bookshop in Khan Market, Atlas Cycles, the Scots Group, Apollo Tires, uh, you know, then the Volga and Quality Restaurant Chains and other restaurants in CP and Pandara Road. Uh, Oklahom Industrial Estate also. Accommodated a number of well-known refugee enterprises, you know, Frick, Sea, Bharat Steel, to name a few. And then um, uh, the names of resident colonies in Delhi also comes from the places in Pakistan the refugees had hailed from, like Mea Wali Nagar, Dere Wal Nagar, Kohat Enclave, Gujranwala Model Town. So that partition serves as a defining moment that changed the social profile of Delhi can be seen from the fact that the capital is set to get a partition museum uh, at the Dara Shiko library building in old Delhi very soon. One can't therefore deny that, um, you know, the Kapoor, the Kannas, the Manotras, the Puris, you know, post partition changed the landscape of Delhi with their commercial drive and success. And uh, the meta-narrative we find in rehabilitation reports is that the bewildered, dispossessed people, the torn pasts became the inheritors because of their courage and industry. However, uh, ironically and more importantly, uh, the meta-narrative turned out to be so strong that it completely drowns out the post 1947 rehabilitation story of the migrants and uh, the refugee experience therefore came to be accessed mostly in terms of these success stories Hmm. and the losses whatsoever cultural ethnic remain unexamined.
0: On the face of it uh, the Muslims and the Hindus at large seem you know to be most affected but surely other communities on both sides of the border must also have felt the ramifications of this movement. So, What can you tell me more about uh, who was affected and how this played out?
1: Absolutely. Um, a number of communities and minority groups were affected on both sides of the border. Even when we talk about the Hindus and Muslims, the experience of various minorities uh, and communities within these larger religious groups was a highly differentiated experience that varied according to regions, ethnicity and cultural patterns. This um, stands in stark contrast to the homogenized and unified narrative one finds in popular imagination. And it's time uh, to unlearn some of these sanctioned familial narratives and know more about migrant groups that received relatively lesser attention, be it the East Bengalis in Calcutta, the Silhetis in Assam, the Parsis and Christians in Karachi, the Sindhi Hindus in Bombay and other parts of India, or um, the Urdu-speaking muhajirs in both wings of Pakistan, the Dalit communities who came from East Pakistan into India, uh, the Maurit Islanders in the Sundarbans, the Maru Meghwal's from the Tharparkar district of who walked across Thata and Sukur into Rajasthan and Gujarat. So, the after effects of um, partitions displacements on these communities has also been varied. And I'm going to list a few consequences uh, you know, of their displacements. Uh, the refugees' categoric denial, first of all, of their refugee ness. Then, Uh, the ongoing ethnic conflicts between natives and newcomers, the self-fashioning of certain migrants and refugee populations as diasporas. Also, uh, the continuing anxieties about demarcating illegal migrants and infiltrators from legal citizens, the construction of certain migrants as enduring strangers, indeed as foreigners or enemies, who need to be expunged from the space of the nation. The fleeing of certain migrant groups out of an impending fear and violence rather than any actual uh, incidence of violence in a specific region because all regions were not impacted equally and uh, there were regions where incidents of violence were less but the rumours were more. And finally, you know, the reduction of unwanted migrants to a kind of human waste who must be removed to detention camps like Dandakaranya in central India, which serve as what uh, sociologist Zygmunt Berman calls nowhere places, you know, nowhere places or dumping sites for waste of humans. And they were forced to lead what, uh, you know, Giorgio Gambin calls a bare life. The citizenship status of many of these migrants is marked by ambivalence and uncertainty even today. Uh,
0: beyond the human element, it seems to me that Pakistan and India would perhaps see the partition today from a different position. And uh, the role of colonialism is largely left out in most of the conversations. The main topic of uh, you know the main topic of discussion is usually Kashmir, and it is something of ongoing concern. But can you speak to me more about what also uh, we should be talking about within uh, the partition today?
1: I totally agree that um, the Kashmir conflict remains one of the major causes of regional instability in the region, uh, having escalated into major wars between the two nations and several other armed skirmishes. The tensions in the conflict have been nurtured by a pervasive distrust uh, between the two countries, the root causes of which can be traced back to British colonization, during which different religious groups and communities perceive themselves as persecuted uh, minorities due to British policies in the region. Also, The British uh, systematically promoted political divisions between Hindus and Muslims, uh, defined as the monolithic communities that they'd never been before uh, the British came. The ongoing conflict in Kashmir, uh, you know, does remind us that partition cannot be so easily put away under the covers of history books. Of course, um, there's the question of suppression and indignities on both sides. Struggling with an international territorial dispute, the Kashmiris live in suspicion and fear with a profound sense of rupture. As them. Everyone seems to be talking of the land, but few understand the value of just extended boundaries. And in the tug of war between the two sides, the resources are being snatched away from the locals who have witnessed a long history of political rivalries, radical nationalisms and uh, militant insurgency. So there's no doubt that uh, Kashmir remains one of the darkest chapters uh, of the subcontinent's post-independent history. It has kind of become a cliffhanger of fires, geopolitical activity as each player tries to gain an upper hand. And ranging from the unprecedented mass exodus of the Kashmiri pundits to widespread communications blackout and harsh curfews, uh, the Kashmiris have been living with uh, what we can call a systematic violation of human rights. And uh, coming to the other part of your question, uh, you know, for Pakistan and India today, Uh, Partition positions itself uh, as what uh, Priya Kumar terms a founding trauma for the nationalist imagination of both states. Uh, In her book, uh, Limiting Secularism, uh, she argues that any effort to imagine a living together uh, for both nations, you know, a living together of peace and accord in the subcontinent must acknowledge, reflect and work through this founding trauma. And uh, looking at the remains of partition, what the two nations witness today is an extraordinary love-hate relationship. So on one hand, there's deep animosity and the most militant of nationalisms that is backed up by nuclear weapons. And on the other, a deep sense of nostalgia, childhood memories, lost friendships, articulated from time to time, uh, you know, in the view that this was a partition of siblings that should never have occurred.
0: Uh, You know, expanding what you're just saying, you know, Sadat Hassan uh, Manto or Manto as he's commonly known, he once wrote that, and I quote, despite trying, I could not separate India from Pakistan and Pakistan from India, unquote. And personally, I studied abroad and had so many Pakistani classmates and friends. And really, it feels like we're from the same country. Uh, my question to you is, and you answered this a little bit in the previous question, but do you think the partition and independence uh, is meant to be celebrated, uh, mourned or forgotten? And what can we learn from it?
1: The huge uh, corpus of literature uh, that has been written by writers like Manto, Intizar Hussain, Bishan Sahani, Faiz, Ahmed Faiz, Kuratulin Kura Hader and many others uh, portrays how the partition's displaced subject like Mantu himself who was a a migrant, uh, how the partition's displaced subject would never cope with the sense of dislocation or rootlessness, exile and the experience of being unable to return to their homelands. So, Mantu's lament is a clear invocation of the shared past of the two nations regardless of differences along uh, myriad lines including religious social political and even historical india and pakistan share centuries old heritage of a syncretic composite past you know a pluralist multi religious multicultural way of living together often referred to as the ganga jamuni tehzeeb Although some scholars are skeptical about such romantic memories of amity and friendship that idealize the past, one cannot turn one's eye to the composite civilizational legacy, deeply intertwined by people, culture, mythologies. And that's also the precise reason why it feels like you and your Pakistani friends are from the same country. So no matter how much Uh, you know, we continue to stay in a state of denial, we cannot nullify a rich and checkered past of shared historical and shared cultural ethos, as well as shared realities of everyday existence. And as the Mm -hmm. famous author, Reena Nanda has noted, irrespective of whether they were Hindu, Muslim or Sikh, they shared a collective universe. Uh, a space where there is no place for outward distinctions. A space in which Bulle Shah's Ranjha could play Bismillah ki Holi and a Sikh could sing Allah ke bande. So this heritage was destroyed by the politics of concretized religious identities that led to partition. And that is the first lesson we need to learn from partition. It was a moment of madness fear and panic blinded people and when the frenzy passed they were ashamed to look at each other you ask me if uh, partition and independence uh, need to be celebrated mourned or forgotten uh, well uh, my response is it has to be remembered with a hyphen re-membered as in relearned partition brought in a tearing apart of individuals' homes, families, linguistic and cultural communities that would once have been called nationalities. And that this tearing apart was permanent, that it necessitated new borders, new histories, new identities has been a major takeaway. And part of the task now would be to unlearn and relearn And as I said earlier, remember with a hyphen, you know, unlearn and relearn some of the lessons of history. Remembering the past by privileging memories of violence over other happier times amounts to no wisdom. So for future generations of Pakistan and India, the best way to remember the past would be to spread narratives of love, friendship and bonds so as to foster tolerance and peaceful coexistence in the future.
0: Wow, that's so wonderful. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Shivali, for joining me. Your insights were really good. It gave a really nice uh, perspective uh, to the partition and to independence. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Anmol. It's been a
0: pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Youth. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Anmol Karnik, and is produced by Curious List, with music by Sanjeel Malik.